Hello, I'm Jeannie Poole, the Editor-in-Chief of the Heart Rhythm O2 Journal. I would like to welcome you to our second year of publication. We will continue to publish every other month, including original articles, brief reports, topics in review, and perspectives in contrast. Today, I will summarize the February 2021 issue. The first paper is an editorial comment by Drs. Jensen and Nielsen reviewing the recent 2020 APHRS, HRS Expert Consensus Statement on the Investigation of Dissidents with Sudden Unexplained Death and Patients with Sudden Cardiac Arrest and of Their Families. The first original paper is by Dr. Kondo and colleagues from Chiba University in Japan. The title of this paper is Comparison of Two-Year Outcomes Between Primary and Secondary Prophylactic Use of Defibrillators in Patients with Coronary Artery Disease, a Prospective Propensity Score Matched Analysis from the Nippon STORM Study. This is a prospective observational study in Japanese patients looking at two-year outcomes following ICD implantation. In a propensity score matching of 266 of the patients to compare the primary, 36%, and secondary prevention groups, the authors found no significant differences in terms of the incidence of appropriate ICD therapy, which was 15% in the primary and 24% in the secondary prevention patients. However, the risk of VTVF storm was significantly higher at two years in the secondary prevention patients, 3.3% in the primary prevention versus 9.6% in the secondary prevention. The next paper is by Dr. Jackson and colleagues from King's College London using body surface mapping or ECGI to measure acute changes in electrical resynchronization after CRT implantation in 21 patients. The authors measured several parameters of LV activation times at baseline and then acutely after the CRT implant, and they also measured left ventricular volume at echocardiography at six months post the CRT implant. The authors found that while the baseline activation time parameters did not predict the six-month changes on echocardiographic volume measurements, but they were significantly related to the LV activation measurements made acutely after CRT. In another study looking at CRT, Dr. Sohal and colleagues from multiple institutions in London looked at CRT outcomes in a multi-center setting of 281 patients who were randomized to guided CRT for targeted LV lead placement versus the implanting physician's choice. The targeted LV placement included measurement of LV DP DT max measured during VIV pacing. Overall, 73% of the patients in the targeted LV guided arm demonstrated a reduction in the left ventricular and systolic volume that was greater than 15% at six months. This is compared to only 60% in the conventional arm. This was a significant difference. Patients with an acute hemodynamic response equal to or greater than 10% were those most likely to have exhibited ventricular remodeling. The duration and fluoroscopy time of the procedure were also longer in the pressure wire-guided arm compared to the traditional approach to implantation. The authors conclude that using an approach that measures acute hemodynamic changes can be useful to predict six-month improvements in LV volumes and function. The next paper by Dr. Friedman and colleagues from multiple institutions authored a paper entitled Catheter Ablation and Healthcare Utilization and Cost Amongst Patients with Paroxysmal Versus Persistent Atrial Fibrillation. The objective was to compare the changes in AF-related healthcare utilization and costs from pre-ablation to post-ablation amongst patients with both paroxysmal and persistent AF. 2,794 patients were reviewed 
who had atrial fibrillation ablation between 2016 and 2018. The authors looked at the outcomes of inpatient admissions, emergency room visits, office visits, cardioversion, and use of antiarrhythmic drugs. The authors found that the 12-month post-ablation costs were lower for AF-specific inpatient admissions for paroxysmal versus persistent AF, but healthcare-related costs were overall higher for paroxysmal AFib patients for emergency room visits, antiarrhythmic drug prescription fills, and cardioversions. However, still, the absolute costs remained higher for those with persistent AF. When comparing the year prior to the ablation to the year after the ablation, at one year, costs were significantly higher in the year after for all AF ablation patients, but at 18 months, the costs were overall significantly lower. The authors suggest that significant reductions in healthcare utilization and costs were observed for both paroxysmal and persistent AF patients undergoing ablation, and that a strategy of earlier ablation could reduce long-term healthcare utilization and costs. In the next paper, Dr. Battersher and colleagues from the Medical College of South Carolina authored a paper entitled Racial Differences in Left Atrial Size in Extracellular Matrix, Homeostatic Response to Hypertension. Is this a potential mechanism of reduced atrial fibrillation in African Americans? The authors explored the differences in extracellular matrix between African Americans and Caucasians as a response to hypertension that may attenuate the subsequent atrial enlargement and alter myocardial fibrosis. The study involved the collection of extracellular matrix-related plasma biomarkers and review of echocardiographic data on 326 Caucasian and 129 African-American subjects without a history of atrial fibrillation and stratified by the presence of hypertension alone, hypertension with LVH, or hypertension with LVH and with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. The primary findings were that the left atrial size was significantly smaller in African-Americans. Left atrial enlargement in those with hypertension was less in African Americans versus Caucasians despite similar degrees of left ventricular hypertrophy, degrees of diastolic dysfunction, or six-minute walk test results. Regarding the extracellular matrix, African Americans had lower collagen I telopeptide and higher collagen I propeptide in all groups. The authors also measured the matrix metalloproteinases and the tissue inhibitors of these. The findings showed that African Americans with hypertension had significantly lower levels of MMP2, MMP3, and MMP8, and also lower levels of tissue inhibitors of MP1 and MP3. Similarly, African Americans with LVH had lower levels of these biomarkers, and finally, African Americans had lower levels of NT-pro-BNP amongst all of the subgroups. The authors concluded that racial differences are present in the extracellular matrix as measured by blood biomarkers and atrial remodeling in both LVH alone or in LVH with HEF-PEF in African Americans. These findings may provide further insights on the risk of atrial fibrillation in African Americans. The next paper is by Dr. Liu and colleagues from the University of Vancouver in Canada and have authored a paper called Effectiveness of a Simple Medication Adjustment Protocol for Optimizing Pericardioversion Rate Control, a Derivation and Validation Cohort Study. These authors purpose to derive and validate pre-procedural adjustment of medications with the goal to keep the AF heart rate appropriate, yet without causing post-cardioversion bradycardia in 571 consecutive patients across two hospital systems. For the derivation, the patients had the medications adjusted for the heart rate during the two days prior to cardioversion. Then the adjustment protocol that achieved the highest percentage of optimal peri 
DC cardioversion rate control was tested prospectively in the validation cohort. The optimal protocol defined was defined as titrating the dose to keep the heart rate above 100 beats per minute as this approach improved the peri-DC cardioversion rate control compared to current standard of care. In following this approach, there were no conversion pauses greater than 5 seconds noted and there was no need for pacing or for CPR due to bradycardia following the cardioversion. The next paper comes from Dr. Chinmay and colleagues from multiple institutions. This paper is titled Impact of Catheter Ablation in Patients with Atrial Flutter and Concurrent Heart Failure. Using the nationwide readmission database between 2016 and 2017, the authors looked at a retrospective cohort of 15,952 patients with atrial flutter who also had heart failure. The primary outcome measure was all-cause mortality and or heart failure readmission at one year. Propensity score matching was used to adjust for confounders. Of the 15,952 patients, 9,889 had heart failure with reduced ejection fraction and 6,063 had heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. In the propensity matched heart failure with reduced ejection fraction cohort, the authors found that one-year all-cause mortality and or heart failure readmissions were significantly lower in patients who had had ablation with a hazard ratio of 0.72. In the matched heart failure with preserved ejection fraction cohort, the primary outcome of mortality and or heart failure admission was lower in the group receiving ablation but did not reach statistical significance. The next paper comes from Dr. Ganneman colleagues from the University of Michigan. The title of this paper is Factors Predictive for Delayed Enhancement in Cardiac Resonance Imaging in Patients Undergoing Catheter Ablation of Premature Ventricular Complexes. The purpose of this study was to determine the prevalence of scarring detected by delayed enhancement on cardiac MRI scans and to derive a risk score in 333 patients with frequent PVCs predictive of outcomes preferred for ablation. Internal validation was performed with bootstrap sampling. Among the 333 patients, 52% were male, the pre-ablation ejection fraction was 50.9%, they had a PVC burden of 20.7%, of whom 34% of those had DECMR scarring apparent. Multiple logistic regression analysis showed age and pre-ablation ejection fraction to be predictive of scar. A weighted risk score incorporating age and EF was used to stratify patients then into low, medium, and high-risk groups. Scar prevalence was around 86% in the high-risk group and 12% in the low-risk group. High-risk patients had worse survival free of arrhythmias. The authors concluded that cardiac scar was present in about one-third of the patients who had been referred for PVC ablation. Based upon these findings, the authors suggest that a simple weighted risk score based upon patient age and pre-procedural ejection fraction will help to discriminate between patients at high and low risk for the presence of SCAR on MRI scan and worsened arrhythmia outcomes. Next up is a paper by Dr. Johnny et al. and colleagues from multiple U.S. centers. The paper is entitled Impact of Catheter Ablation in Patients with Both Atrial Flutter and Concurrent Heart Failure. The purpose is to assess the outcomes of A-flutter ablation on mortality and heart failure readmissions in patients with a combination of atrial flutter and heart failure. The authors used the nationwide readmission database to look at all-cause mortality and heart failure readmissions at one year after atrial flutter ablation in 9,889 patients. These patients all also had either reduced ejection fraction or heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Propensity score matching was used to adjust for confounders. 
In the matched heart failure reduced ejection fraction cohort, the primary outcome was significantly lower in patients undergoing ablation with a hazard ratio 0.72. Heart failure readmission, all-cause mortality, and AF readmission were also significantly reduced. In the matched HEFPEF cohort, the primary outcome was lower in the group receiving ablation but did not reach statistical significance. The authors include that in patients with atrial flutter and reduced ejection fraction heart failure, atrial flutter ablation was associated with a lower mortality and lower rate of heart failure readmissions at one year. However, in patients with atrial flutter and preserved ejection fraction heart failure, these findings did not show a similar significant reduction in the primary outcome. The next paper by Dr. Nian and colleagues is titled The Cumulative Effects in Clinical Safety of Repeat Magnetic Resonance Imaging on an MRI Conditional Pacemaker System at 1.5 Tesla. This is a sub-study of the larger Prospective Pro MRI study. This sub-study looked at those patients who had, had multiple MRI scans of separate body regional areas. Pacing parameters that were measured included pacing capture threshold, lead impedance, sensing amplitude, and battery capacity, which were measured before and after the MRI scans. 81 patients had three or more MRI scans, and no serious adverse device effects occurred. They did note statistically significant changes in pacing thresholds and sensing immediately after and at one month post the MRI scans, but the magnitude difference was considered to not be clinically significant. The next paper is by Dr. Torado and colleagues from the Virginia Commonwealth University. Their paper is called Eccentric Hypertrophy in an Animal Model of Mid- and Long-Term Premature Ventricular Contraction-Induced Cardiomyopathy. The purpose of this animal study is to compare the impact of chronic PACs and PVCs on ventricular hemodynamic structure and function. 27 canine models were used in this study to reproduce atrial PACs or ventricular bigemony for 12 weeks. These were then compared to sham-operated animals. Four further animals were exposed to bigemony for 48 weeks. The authors found that measures of LV function decreased by 12 weeks but remained stable after that. The PVC group, unlike the PAC group, demonstrated a significant decrease in measures of left ventricular function at 12 weeks without further deterioration beyond 16 weeks. No adverse significant cardiac remodeling was noted in either the sham or the PAC group at 12 weeks. The next paper is an invited review article by Dr. Isabel Deschen on long QT syndrome. This is an excellent from bench to bedside review. The final paper is by Dr. Sanchez and colleagues and provides a very interesting short report on obtaining ECGs on patients in the prone position for patients on ventilators. They used positions that fairly replicated the position on the posterior back as the standard anterior front chest. The authors found a high level of concordance with standard ECGs, offering this as a method that can be used in such patients. I hope you have enjoyed our February podcast, reviewing our February issue of the Heart Rhythm O2 Journal. We look forward to a very busy year and welcome submissions covering the broad area of heart rhythm disorders. We also welcome submissions from around the world. Thank you.